0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 401 Premium for Thursday, June 7th,
1: 2012. <laughs> Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab Premium show. And presumably those of you that are listening to Premium know what we're all about here. But just in case, we're the show where you send in your questions. We try to answer those questions. You send in your tips. We share your tips. We share some of our own. Sometimes we talk about stuff that's happening. But the goal here is to learn at least a few things new each time we all get together. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Hi, John F. Brown. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Lantastic. Every time you yeah. say fantastic, I think of Lantastic. Did you ever use Lantastic back in the day?
0: Oh, gosh. I think I did, didn't I? Uh, yeah, like you. We talked about links, this before. Link to computers, right? Yeah, I exactly. used it too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over modem, typically, right? Oh, I always used it with cables. Oh. Yeah, it must have been some, something else I was using, let you do remote. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Over the
1: modem, yeah. Anyway, uh, all right. So, should we dive right into Jeff here and and see if we can get back into the swing of things after we after we had our little departure on our 400th show there? Why not? All right. Well, there would be the one reason why not is if you don't actually have the question in front of you, which I didn't at the time. All right, Jeff writes. In the past, you've mentioned smart mailboxes and Mail app. But I don't think you've ever touched on the difference between these smart mailboxes versus regular mailboxes. What's the difference? And are they worth using? Well, of course, they're worth using because they're smarter. No, um, the the in short, smart, smart mailboxes are based on rules and are merely I, I like to think of them as lenses into your mail archive. There's no content that actually lives in a smart mailbox in that that content is also somewhere else. The smart mailbox is just a filter that allows you to see mail that fits a certain set of criteria uh, from elsewhere in mail. So that can be really handy. There's a lot of reasons you might use them Um one uh smart mailbox that I use is, is I actually, I link with Address book. It actually gets kind of, kind of funny, uh, actually a little convoluted when I travel sometimes, especially if I'm on vacation or a semi vacation, as I like to call it, uh, my mail might mound up in in my inbox and I don't want to have to go through the inbox and, and see, but there are certain people that I know if I get an email from, you know, one of these people, I want to see it. So I create an address book. I create a group called priority senders and I put all these people into it and then I create a smart mailbox that uh, that the rules are. In fact, I can pull it up because I have it right here. And the rule is if the message is in inbox and the sender is a member of group priority senders, boom, put them in here. And so it'll fill that mailbox only with people that are have sent me mail in my in It's in my inbox. So I haven't filed it yet. And they're part of a certain group. So it allows me to again to filter it down. Really handy stuff. And you can get really creative with these things. And so so that's the benefit of smart mailboxes. The mail still lives wherever it lives in your in your archive, but you can use these rules to help see your mail in a different way. Do you use smart mailboxes, John?
0: You know, I did for for um yeah, I was experimenting with them for a couple of upcoming uh shows. Okay. And looking at it, it doesn't look like they're quite as Flexible as the the rule base that you can apply for a, a regular mailbox. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's what, what we talked about a little before, but I guess the, the thing that disappoints me is that the logic is very, well, it's either or. You can either say, show me things that match any of these rules or conditions, as they call them, or all of them. And I think I actually dug back and I think our own John uh, Martellaro actually did a uh, little write up on on the, everything you ever want to know about mail rules. And I think that's a And to me, that's one of the limitations that really kind of bothers me, because in this case, having a rule where I could say this or this and this, if you know what I'm talking about, would have been much more useful. But but I use this uh, to say, OK, so if it's from this email address, which is the email address for this particular show and the date is after this, then put it in this, uh, as you said, smart mailbox lens and then what i would do is highlight them and then say move and move them into uh another mailbox but it gave me a quick view and yeah as you said it's just a it's just a view it's not a physical mailbox and once right. you get rid of it um then it goes away but you're not actually deleting anything whereas uh you know with a regular mailbox of course if you get rid of it then you uh, also potentially erase all the messages in it so
1: right Right. Yeah. And and you know, not dissimilar to the the smart playlist feature in iTunes or smart albums in iPhoto. I mean it's that it's that same concept. Of course, iTunes does let you do some uh some grouping uh which is really handy, but you know, that's just that's iTunes, so um and by and by that I mean you can create oh, I should I should uh watch before I leave here. But uh, in iTunes, when you go, you know, file, create smart player, new smart playlist, or if you're editing a smart playlist, you've got just like you do in mail, the little plus sign along the side that lets you add criteria and you can say match all or any, but then you can also hit the option key when, and when you hit the plus sign and in iTunes, and this does not exist in mail, but in iTunes that lets you create subgroups, which can get really, really handy uh, and you can create subgroups within subgroups. So, and you can say, you know, with the subgroups, you get to pick that either all of the conditions or any of the conditions are true. So, so you can you can really get complex with it, and and it, it's actually really handy uh, at times. So, have you played with that, John? Not yet. All right. Well, I'm sure you will. All right. Uh, moving on to. Shall we move on to Gary, or is there anything more you want to sure. add? Here? Okay. Yeah, I think Gary has a tale of woe. He does, but hopefully we have a, uh, well, we'll pass it back and forth, but uh, but
0: you, you start with him. So Gary writes, I was checking my mail when a violent sneeze, <laughs> sounds like Jeff Gammon, caused me to lose my grip on my coffee cup and coffee spilled on my MacBook Pro. Oh, no. I'm under Apple AppleCare, uh, but I'm aware that it does not cover accidents, which, yes. As far as I know that 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 is true. Uh now he mentions he's he's due uh uh some money in refunds from from a internship program. I was wondering if it's best to use that money, which I guess it's several thousand dollars, to have it repaired or to buy a new MacBook. The computer in question is late 2009, 13 inch that we bought in March of twenty ten, just before Apple did a refresh. And then he has another question which we already answered. But and my response was uh so we both responded so here I'll, I'll give uh, my take on this. Oops! Oh gosh! Ah, I don't I don't see my reply in here. I think I just oh no I'm sorry. All right, hi Gary. All maybe may not be lost. Uh, and then I relate to him a thing where I had a actually had a liquid spill incident, and I guess I'll mention what I did. So I had a liquid spill incident. Uh, what I did immediately was to take the machine, turn it upside down. You know, so I, I grabbed a towel, turn it upside down in hopes of the liquid uh, going in the opposite direction. And I think oh, I accomplished Away from this. the motherboard. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So I turn it upside down, put it on top of a towel, let it sit there for a while. Uh, and then I replaced the keyboard. So, so what happened is that I did not nuke the machine because I think the architecture, or the way this machine was built is actually the keyboard, uh, pretty much the whole thing had electro. what I guess is some sort of, uh, uh, I mean, it almost seemed like electrical tape was surrounding it. So I think it prevented the liquid from going inside the machine. And I don't know if that's the case for all of the Apple keyboards. Uh, what happened, though, because it was a beverage that had um, uh, you know, a lot of sugar in it is that it actually gummed up some of the work. So some of the keys didn't work. So, so in the meantime, I got by with an external keyboard. But then I ordered, I think it was iFixit, I ordered a keyboard, replaced it myself, and then everything was working great. And then what happened is a little while later, another issue, which I do not believe was related, I think it was a GPU issue, came up. And... You know, sent it to called apple care said you know i'm getting this error in the console and stuff and they're like yep yeah i think we're gonna fix it and it turns out i think they replaced either the gpu or the motherboard so my question to him is is the machine totally dead or does it still function in my case it still functioned partially uh and then the other advice i have is you know you can you can just be brutally honest and and tell them you know hey you know look had an accident and um, you know check the machine out and Hmm. maybe they'll let you get away with a flat rate repair. Uh, I don't know, but it can't hurt to ask. I mean, the worst that can happen is they'll say no. Right. Um, That's true. <laughs> I found, you know, being uh, honest with them. And I know people, uh, you know, that listen to us at our tech say, you know what? The worst thing you can do is when you come in is to lie and say, Oh, uh, I don't know. what happened. <laughs> Don't do that because you're going to get on the wrong side of, of the, of the technician or the genius is, you know, to be honest And maybe they'll show pity or if the damage isn't as bad now, now he, and maybe you want to pick it up here, but he actually did reply to my uh, query here. All right. Well, I'll continue.
1: No, no, I can. I mean, I can share the, the experience that I have and, and the advice, which, which builds on what you just said, which is be honest. Uh, We've heard several stories from people that have had water damage. In fact, I think our own Brian Chaffin was one of these people that, that told me this. and, and, as the stories go, you walk in, you say, hey, I'm under Apple care or, you know, warranty, whatever it is uh, or or not, you know, um, and I have a problem with my with my machine. It got wet. Now, in many cases, a- Apple's policies on whether or not they can cover things that got wet are pretty straight and narrow. Uh, the trick is if the the liquid sensor and they've got these little liquid sensors, the iPhone has a couple of them and your MacBook has them too. And it's little white pieces of something that turn pink when exposed to water and they take a look. And if it's pink, then that qualifies you as having had liquid damage. And so certain parts, in fact, most parts of your warranty no longer apply. But, uh, but a lot of people have gone in and said, Hey, look, you know, I, I spilled something on this. What can you do? And the techs at the Genius Bar are really smart. They they know, OK, let's look. Again, you've been honest with them. You're, you know, you're treating them kindly and you're looking for begging for mercy. And in many cases, you can have liquid damage without the liquid sensor ever having been tripped. And if if that's the case, then they'll cover it. Um, at least in pretty much every story that we've heard about this. So, you know, so it's, you know, what you said is, is absolutely the right thing, John, go in be honest, uh, and just ask, you know, what, what are my options? And they might tell you, Hey, you know what, you're in luck and they're, they're going to be able to fix it for you. It's, it's worth a shot. There's, there's very little harm other than spending a little bit of time. So.
0: Yeah, and I did find an article, well, we'll link to it, but actually Apple does have an article at least showing you in the uh, in the iDevices where the liquid sensors are. I think a lot of
1: them, It's a, if you look in the headphone port, you can, uh, headphone jack, I think sometimes you can see it. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, the dock connector supposedly has one too, I think, right? On the oh, new, good. On well, if you click ones. on that link that I, I just yeah. put in our uh, chat room.
0: Ooh, I guess My experience is up. that, you know, if it's, Anything that has sugar in it, you know, like soda, or if you put cream or, or something in your coffee, or like in my case, it was a beer, anything that has sugar in it, you're, you're probably going to screw things up and then it's going to come up the work. So if it's just pure water, you may have less of a chance. And I think to pass something along, we, we have had a few uh, people in our uh, circle have uh, liquid damage with eye uh, devices, and actually what has worked? So a little tip here, with an eye device, like an iPhone or an iPod, as soon as you can, well, number one, of course, remove it, you know, whether it fell in a toilet or a sink or something. Sure putting it in a bag of rice seems to, because I guess rice absorbs the moisture. So, so for a lot of people uh, that has helped and recovered the device. If you didn't get too much water inside of it, I've heard that that's a a good thing to try.
1: Yeah. And there, there are actually uh, people that, that sell bags. I think it's, is it the, the, the thirsty bag or something that I fix it sells that, uh, that, that does exactly that, right? It, it, it is a bag of something better than rice apparently. Um, so worth, uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Worth having around. I think you can get them for, for pretty cheap. So I'm trying to find it and now I'm, I'm not able to, but we'll, we'll put it in the, in the show notes, but it's worth having one around. So, uh, Anything else to do on this one, John here? Nope. All right. See, now I'm building your show notes for you on the fly. And and so that takes time. Moving on to Harry. Harry asks, in at least two episodes recently, Dave has spoken about issues with the Drobo FS and that if he had to make the choice for network, network attached storage again, he might have chosen differently. Being in a situation where I need to find a NAS device to replace an antique snap server with a whopping 100 gigabytes of storage and find some type of large storage device for my wife's massive iPhoto library, about 500 gigabytes and rapidly climbing, I am interested in the possibility of these needs being met by the same device. Two questions. Is it even a good idea to store iPhoto libraries on a NAS device? And if you were to do it all over again and choose a device other than the Drobo, what device would it be and why? so I did, I've ranted about the Drobo FS and, and I've actually gone pretty deep on this, um, and figured out what, what it is that I, uh, am having a problem with and have have reported it to Drobo. And they've, they've actually confirmed that they found this and, and are investigating a fix. They, there is no fix promised, So I want to make sure that's clear, but, but I think they're, they're certainly curious and, and interested in solving it if it's possible. Um, My issue with Drobo is their networking and file sharing software. Okay. Uh, When I first started with Drobo, I had a a Drobo second generation, which is the one that you connect to your Mac or or some other device via either USB or Firewire. And that worked fine. And it still works fine for me. Um, I also with that got a Drobo share which was horrible. The Drobo share was this device that uh, sat, it was built to sit underneath the Drobo and it connected to the Drobo via USB and then to the network via gigabit ethernet. And, and it's, I, you know, the idea was that this thing had a little essentially embedded Linux server in it and it would share your files, but it was really slow and even worse, worse than it being slow transfer rate wise. It was really slow to navigate directories and that sort of thing. I'm seeing the same problem with the Drobo FS. Uh, uh, Although it's not slow transfer rate wise, it's really, really slow navigating files. And I believe the problem is that the core of this software that's in it, uh, when I have, you know, so I I have my iTunes library. I tried to keep it on a Drobo FS and I have, I don't know. I don't know how many songs I have, you know, many tens of thousands of songs. And in, and they're, they're in, uh, uh, there's about 200, uh, sorry, about 2,500 artists. Okay. So if I open my music folder, it's going to list about 2,500 artists. If I open that folder up on the Drobo FS, it takes about three and a half minutes before I get a directory listing. That's really slow. If I open that same folder on a SATA drive internal on my iMac, and I have this same folder in multiple places for testing purposes. And yes, it was a pain in the neck to get it everywhere, but now I have lots of backup. So bonus, uh, it opens in like half a second. I also put that folder on the second generation Drobo hanging off of my time capsule, uh, essentially acting as an air disc. And on that opening that, uh, with ostensibly slower drives. Cause I kind of put my leftover drives in the Drobo second generation, uh, on that it opens in like a second it's really really fast and the reason is the drobo isn't the the second generation drobo is not managing its own file system it's just acting as a drive and so it's the time capsule that's doing the work of managing the file system and it does it um, more intelligently than the drobo fs or the drobo share does so i think this problem the good news is that this problem i think is solvable with software um you know Here's the thing, when your Mac is managing a disk that it's directly connected to, it can cache things in the file system, it can be really intelligent about it, and it doesn't have to constantly read from the disk. On a network device, though, you do not want your Mac caching anything because, let's say John and I are on the same network and both connected to the same network device, well... If John goes and makes a change to something on this device, I don't want to trust my Mac's cache of what was on there because it's now wrong. So because of that, the Mac does not keep any caches or minimal caches of what what uh, what exists in the directories on a network device. So it has to constantly ask, hey, what do you have? And it seems like the Drobo, at least the FS or anything where they run their own networking, is not intelligent enough about this. So I do think it's solvable via via software. Now, I don't know if there's limitations in the hardware that keep the software from expanding to the point where it would actually be manageable. But that's hopefully what Drobo is is working on, because it really is. a. I mean, I really like the Drobo uh, and the concept of it is great. You know, if I go get another uh, NAS device and I do a raid thing, I have to get all the same size disks, which isn't a big deal on day one. But let's say you know you're two years down the road and you have a disk go bad. Well, now, you know you've got to find a drive that's the same size, and if it's not the same size, you, you know you've got to go through this whole rigmarole of formatting it the right way and then upgrading potentially everything. So it's really handy to be able to just put any size drive you want into this trobo and it mixes matches and so So today, if I had to give you buying advice today, I would say, do not buy the FS. Buy a, a Drobo, you know, second generation or a Drobo S rather, I guess is what it, what it really is. And, uh, and just share it yourself from, from something. And, and that can be okay. If you, if you need maximum transfer speed, then I would go for a more traditional RAID unit. But, um, but even on the Drobo FS with, with fast drives in there, you know, I get, uh, seven, 800 megabytes a second. So it's not that bad. Megabits a second. Sorry. Not megabytes. I don't want to misspeak on that. So uh, the answer to, to the question, the second question uh, regarding an iPhoto library is uh, we keep Lisa's, uh, you know, which is our family's iPhoto library. That's only about 200 gigs, but we keep it on that Drobo second gen and it's zippy. She doesn't notice any problems with it at all. So it's, that's connected via USB, even not even firewire, but USB to the, uh, you know, the time capsule. And then she connects wirelessly to it and she says, it's fine. So, so there you go. Any thoughts on this, John? I know you have a, an FS. Uh,
0: my only observation is the only thing that, that frustrates me about the FS is that when I wake my uh, MacBook pro from sleep, it does not immediately appear in yeah. the sidebar to your point that I think yeah. there's something with whatever AFP stack or whatever they're using in there. Cause I guess it's basically a little baby Linux machine.
1: Yeah, my guess is they're running Netatalk or or something like it, which is the the open source Apple Talk thing. Yeah. Yeah, and what happens is
0: a lot of times, you know, because I schedule my time machine, a lot of times when I wake my machine, it's all ready to do a time machine backup. because It realizes it hasn't done one in a certain amount of time, and typically it'll come up and fail because it doesn't. I think it tries for one or two minutes to to locate the network volume that you identified. If it doesn't find it, then it says, oh, can't find your network volumes. Sorry, I'm going to give up. Uh, the next time around it's fine but that that's that's the only complaint uh that i have right now and i should actually probably document this and get in touch with them because uh yeah, i'm wondering if, if there's something they could just optimize because my other devices like you know my my mac mini which i also you know share on my network i mean that shows immediately in the uh, in the sidebar as a shared volume so
1: yeah there's just something i don't know what it is and I feel like it's an it. I feel like it's an easy solution. You know, and I, I joke, I laugh when I say that, because back, you know, when I was doing the consulting, I used to love it. I'd pick up the phone. I'd say, hi, this is Dave. Somebody would say, oh, you know, I got something. It's going to be really easy for you. It's like, oh, really? Is that you sure about that? You know, is that why you're calling me? Because it's going to be easy. Let's let's go with that, you know. <laughs> so maybe it's not easy for the drobo people, but it seems to me like it it could be. And it would if I, maybe that's wishful thinking because I, because I'd love this thing to work better. So. All right. Um, was there, was there anything else we had in there? Uh, Oh, one of the, one of the things that, uh, that I had researched for Harry was, you know, the, the OWC's Mercury elite pro raids, because those things are screaming fast for, uh, for what they are. You know, I mean, they're, they're regular, regular drives in there, but, uh, and you can get even faster if you do SSDs, but that gets way pricey, but you know,
0: as does, well, the other thing, so, so, you know, we saw a Mac world and I saw some of the up and coming, uh, Thunderbolt implementations. Yeah. And I mean, I saw some of these, especially when they, I forget the level of raid they were doing, but I think they daisy chained four of them together. Uh, and I saw speeds. It was like 800 megabytes a second. It was, it was insane. Hundreds oh, yeah. of megabytes a second. Uh, I don't think they at that point or even now I'll have to check the pricing on that. So you'll pay for it, but yeah,
1: absolutely. Cool. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, you know, depending OWC says you get, you know, 250 megabytes a second over ESATA, but depends on what kind of drives you put in there. But It's fast. But again, I, you know, more to me, if you're moving huge HD videos around, then that speed totally matters. Uh, but, you know if, if if you're just if you're just streaming them, then the speed doesn't matter because you don't need all of it that quickly but um but really it's the latency thing so all right what do we have here oh we have uh we had a lot of comments on show three ninety nine which was the last premium show that we did and so we'll start with uh with a couple of them as questions and then I think we're gonna kind of migrate into tips but uh Jared. This was actually an interesting thing. Uh, Jared wrote and he said uh, in episode three ninety nine, you guys had quite a discussion about the archive button and its function in Apple Mail and also how it relates to Gmail. As you know, it works flawlessly in iOS. But in my opinion, it's super lame on the Mac. And he says uh, when I created this folder uh, and I then I go into Gmail to look at it, it doesn't just say archive. It says imap in brackets and then a slash and then archive and i'd love it if this imap in brackets went away and there was some way for mail app to work with the archive function just like it does on my ios devices well here's the interesting thing uh and at first i thought that uh that this could be avoided but the imap thing cannot be avoided there are certain mailboxes uh, certain label names that you cannot use inside of uh, gmail and believe it or not archive is one of them and i don't know why they do this but things are reserved they have voicemail is reserved archive is reserved obviously sent and drafts and trash and all of those are reserved because they're already in use but archive is reserved and it's not in use but uh but what happens is If you go and create an archive folder from your uh, mail client over IMAP, it doesn't know that this is reserved. So what Gmail does is it's really smart about it. It says, okay, you want to create something called archive. I'm going to go ahead and prepend IMAP to that so that you can still create this archive box. And yet it's not going to confuse anything that Gmail needs to do. So that's why... You see that. And yes, it is frustrating because archive is the name of the mailbox that you want to create in order for this archive function to work. But uh, but you you have to do it that way. And, and, you know, you create it, you call it archive, but it's going to say I'm app slash archive. And that's just Gmail's way of dealing with the fact that you're creating a mailbox that's using a name that it would otherwise not allow you to use. There, there, you go. That's the answer, Jared. I wish I had a, uh, I wish I had a workaround. But the workaround is don't use Gmail. But there's so many benefits to using Gmail other than Google having all your life in their servers. But uh, but otherwise, it's good stuff. So and for free, you can't beat it. And I just figured something out. Yeah, go. So I was
0: looking at the screenshot that he sent us. I was like, wait, my mail doesn't look like this. And what he did is sent us a screenshot that shows uh, him highlighting a mailbox, and then there is an archive button in the toolbar. That's right. I'm like,
1: I don't have that in my toolbar. <laughs> of course you and don't. I don't. Well, why not? Because you upgraded uh, from a previous version of of OS X, and you don't. It just wasn't in your toolbar. But you could put okay. it there
0: and that's what i figured out. So yeah. just a, a handy little side tip here. If you uh well, i do a two-finger tap here, but if you do a control click in the toolbar in mail app and then select customize toolbar dot 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 lo and behold, you will get uh oh my goodness, look at all these
1: things. You can also you can get can to really customize GM. You can get to customize toolbar from the view menu as well. But but either one it does the same thing. Yeah. Right? John did I lose you? I think we lost John. Okay. John, are you back? Yep. Awesome. So you you had beach ball spinning if if I understand this correctly. Yeah, same thing we seemed to have
0: before. I think it was Skype. Got a beach ball on Skype, tried to type something, nothing happened, and then it came back.
1: Very interesting. Well, we're glad we're glad it's all back. Um, all right. So you were saying about the uh, the 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 archive button and your mail toolbar and your customization thereof.
0: Oh, and pretty much wrapping that up is I was yeah. able to find you know the part of mail, and uh, I said I hadn't
1: yet tried the archive feature, but I uh, I might as well at some point. Yeah, it's handy. I you know just it, if you if you are going with the concept of throwing all your mail into one mailbox and then using search or as we talked about at the beginning of the show smart mailboxes to find your your mail because really that's what a smart mailbox is is just a a persistent search right Um, mm-hmm. then then the archive button is it could be your friend all right you ready to take on Michael. I don't know if I'm going to take him on. All right. Well, Michael had a follow-up question to 399, I think.
0: <laughs> okay. So Michael says, I remember you saying that it was best to upgrade to Lion, erasing the hard drive and starting fresh rather than upgrading from Snow Leopard. Yes, I think that 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 is our recommendation. Yes. And I remember you saying that it was not a straightforward process. And no, it is not. But you would post the directions. As much as I look, I can't find it on the website. And actually, I couldn't either, so... I thought I posted an article about this, but can you point me in the right direction? And I was going to write and tell him, well, I did. So I found an article. I think uh, the best summary of the options that are available here is a wonderful little article by Dan Franks over at Macworld. And it says how to make a bootable Lion installed disk or drive. Awesome. I actually hadn't explored the drive part. So certainly I think anything that you can make a, a DVD, a bootable DVD out of, you could certainly make a, a bootable drive out of it. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much the same thing, right? Yeah. It's just different media. I would never thought of that. I, I uh, to me, it would seem kind of wasteful to uh, though. Maybe you want to make a, a bootable Lion install partition, in which case I'd see that. Otherwise, I'd see a hard drive as being kind of a wasteful use of <laughs> hard drive space because the installer is what, four or five gigs, I think it's the, the, the
1: unfortunate part is it is just larger than how much space you would have on a four gigabyte thumb drive so you need to go to an 8 gigabyte thumb drive or some larger drive but you know as you were saying that I was thinking I have some old like 5 10 and 20 gigabyte uh, portable hard drives and it, that would be perfect to put this on if the drives still work
0: so, you know alright and to summarize so so he goes into more detail with the options here but at a very high level this is what you want to do so what you're going to see is if you download the Lion installer, you should see something called install Mac os 10 lionapp in your applications folder. What you then do is a handy trick that we just love, and that is you right-click or control-click on that file, and then you will get a contextual menu item called show package contents because it's really, I guess, a, a folder or a package, which is a special type of thing that doesn't appear as a folder, but but I guess underneath it all it is. And then within that, you will see a contents folder then a shared support folder and within that you will see a file called install esd.dmg. that's right and that is disk image dmg disk image of the lion installer and then he goes on to say there are a number of options here but i think they all involve you bringing that over into disk utility i guess is the best utility you could use another one bring it into disk utility what i've done is bring it into disk utility and then i guess say burn disk image and put in a dvd and Wait a while, and there you go. You have a bootable Lion installer. And I guess the other option is you could uh, do a restore operation to a uh, hard drive, and then that will make a Lion installer on a, a small hard drive. Or I guess as you said, Dave, a, a thumb drive is, is is certainly another
1: option. Yeah, just to, just make sure you get an 8-gigabyte one, the 4-gig one's just not, not qu- I mean, you're talking a couple hundred megabytes shy of big enough to to hold that, which is just too bad. It. Well, I guess because a DVD is what,
0: 4.7 gigs, which I think is just right. enough to hold this. That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I I had uh, I had gone through this when Lion first came out. And I grabbed that install.esd file. And before I installed Lion and then had it wipe it away, I took a copy of that and put it out in a folder on my Drobo FS. Right. So sitting on the network uh in a folder on a, a share then several months later apple updated lion uh you know to 1071 or whatever it was and that required a new download from the from the app store and when that update happened it went and found on my drobo it found that install.est image and updated it which i thought was really bizarre that it actually went out on the network and and found this. I mean, I, I get that they're, you know, being thorough and trying to keep everything up to date, but that's just creepy. So don't throw that out there. All right. Going into the tips section, Andrew writes, in 399, you spoke about mail rules. Here's a little secret for server-side iCloud mail rules. This could help out the guy that was going over his 99 rule maximum. You don't have to have the full email address to create a rule. For example, rather than having a rule for John at MacGeekAb.com and Dave at MacGeekAb.com going into the same folder, you can just set up a a rule for at MacGeekAb.com to have that go into a folder. So mail from any address ending in at MacGeekAb.com goes to the folder you specify. I use this for all mail I get from the New York Times, The Economist, Macworld, etc., I subscribed to lots of different services with different email account names, but common domains. I had the same problem that your questioner had with the ninety nine rule limit, and this is the way I was able to ditch some rules to make room for others that's excellent that's that's the whole you know bumming code bumming lines. I like that that's good. Thank you, Andrew. Good tip Brian and I think the same the same oh, applies to uh
0: gmail. I think when I built a rule, there's you can do a star dot whatever and include a whole domain rather than individual addresses, if it makes sense to do.
1: so. Yeah, there's a there's a Web page that that one of us will find and put in the show notes um, at at Gmail that describes the different the flexibility that you have when creating rules there. It's a it's a page on Google's help in their knowledge base because it it's it it is like you said, John, it's far more flexible than it than it might appear when you uh, when you first look at it.
0: And if I recall, what they support, because I do have one rule, and what I do to separate them is use a vertical bar, which means or. But I think they also support an and operator, which I believe they use an ampersand. So i like theirs because as opposed to mail, where I was griping about that earlier, it would appear that the Gmail filters are much more sophisticated as far as uh, the the, the logic behind them.
1: Which makes me happy as being a logical type of guy. Yeah, no, it's good it's nice to be able to program things and have them do what you intend for them to do. Speaking of which we, uh, we did a little bit of uh, programming and set up this morning and I I think it's still working. We uh, as promised in, in show 400, we wanted to create a more regular streaming option for those of you that care to listen while we record the show live. And so we did. We set up uh what's called an ice cast server, uh IceCast just being the the little engine that 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 does this little magic. And uh and it's running out on one of our servers on the server farm. And then I'm using a piece of software here called NiceCast, which is from uh the same the Rogue Amoeba folks that also make Audio Hijack Pro, which we use for the show and piezo, which John uses to record the backup copy and all of that. And so I'm just taking the audio live that we're recording and also beaming that from my Mac using NiceCast up to this server. And then that's going to all of you. And the, the webpage page is MacGeekGab.com slash stream. And uh, it's very bare bones at the at the moment. Uh, really, I threw it up this morning very, very quickly to get this test up. We've had, uh, you know, a handful, maybe a couple of double handful, triple handful of people uh, listening in. Today, I just I just posted it just before we did the show. Really, I wanted to kind of load test this thing, so I didn't want to have hundreds of people. Um, but uh, but we're having we have a good number up there now. And actually, the server is pretty much asleep. It, it doesn't even seem to care. So so we certainly can have lots more of you out there listening and would love to. So we need to uh, need to tweak out that Web page. If anybody visits that page and has any great ideas for what to do, that would be great. We also are still using the chat room that uh, was provided by Justin.tv. dot uh, We will probably host our own chat room or do something different with that. So we're not forced to keep using their uh, their chat engine. But for today, obviously, it made sense because I really wanted to focus on getting the stream out there. We still need to get the stream to be multi-browser compliant because Firefox doesn't like to stream MP3 stuff because Firefox only does truly open source, and they're really crazy. So, but Safari works, and we have lots of Safari and iOS users listening, and you can stream to your iTunes, of course, um, from it. So so anyway, that's, uh, that was a little bit of programming that we we whipped together for you this morning and it, it seems to be working well. So hopefully we will have a, a more, uh, a more consistent streaming option for audio, uh, as we do the show, because it seems like there's a sizable contingent of you that, uh, that enjoy that. And so that's, that's what we're here for. Our, your delight is our intent, right? Isn't that right, John? Really? Why not? Okay. <laughs> okay. Delight. Yeah, sure. Um we have a note from Brian. Brian is the uh the creator content manager of uh, of keynoteuser.com and we mentioned keynoteuser.com when we were talking about this in our when we were talking about keynote files being uh single file packages as a or single files as opposed to packages now uh back in show 399. And uh, and Brian had this to share. He says, uh, "You guys nailed it. You're right. Keynote files are by default zipped packages. That's not obvious. Uh, but if you add .zip to the end of the name of a keynote file, you can double click and unzip it. If you leave it like this, file name .key .zip, it should keep its .key tag and not turn into a dead folder." If you remove dot key and change it to dot zip, it will break it when you unzip it and simply turn it into a dead folder. Uh, it's a handy little feature. If you need to hack open a keynote file that's been zipped like this or at least convert it into a working package. And uh, and and it's not just keynote files. Pages files do this. And I believe numbers files do this. And again, it's it's built for portability. It's so that you can take this numbers file and copy it to a fat 32 volume or, you know, any anything. And it's still readable so uh so that's why they're they're doing this and they're unzipping it on the fly. So thank you very much for for following up there Brian. We really appreciate it. That's always handy to know a little bit more about what's going on cuz that's what that's what we like here. And John, I think you've got something to uh to add to this, yeah? Yes. Awesome. Cuz so I was scratching my head. How could one figure out that this is a zip file, Dave?
0: So I did a little digging. So one I went into the terminal and a lot of times what you see in the finder is not what you see if you, if you try to do a directory from the terminal. So I created a little, uh, with the latest version of keynote, create a little, uh, keynote presentation, went to where I stored it or uh, changed to that directory, did a, uh LS and it came up as keynote presentation dot key. Like, Oh, okay. Cause I thought it'd come up as a dot zip file. All right. Yeah. And then here's the cool part. So how could you tell if this was, in fact, a zip file, Dave? And I'm going to tell you. This is where I started racking my brain trying to remember the uh, command within uh, the terminal or Unix that will do this for you. And the command is file. Oh, really? And what file does is file tries to identify. and, And this is what I believe is used at the lowest levels of the operating system when it's trying to figure out the nature of a file that you're trying to interact with and so what's cool about this so what i did is i type file space and then the name of my keynote file and it came back and said keynote presentation dot key colon zip archive data at least a version 2.0 to extract so the file man knows that it's really a zip file
1: dude that's awesome <laughs>
0: That just thrilled me to so, death. So wait,
1: tell, sorry, uh, tell me this again. It was the command just file, space, and yes. then the file name? Wow. Correct.
0: Yeah, if you type file in the terminal and then a the space and the name of any file, it will give you a little more information about that file.
1: Really? That's pretty awesome, man.
0: Yeah, we'll try, I'm going to try another one here. I'm going to try it with a, a PDF, and let's see what... Uh... Yep, and it says PDF document version 1.3. So, and if you do a man on file, it'll give you all sorts of things. But if you just type file space and then a, and then the name of the file, it'll it'll give you a, a very high level. I, I think it probably do a lot more work. And and it mentions says there's there's a number of ways it can do this. And and one is, and this is what, where I thought the command was called magic. And I think in some versions of Unix it is, is that there's something known as a magic number. A lot of files have a predictable structure. And that they right. usually have certain characters at the beginning, like I think just off the top of my head, like a BMP graphic file, I think has BM or MB, BM at the beginning.
1: Oh, and this right. is
0: one way, and there's a whole big database of this stuff. And this is something else I'll link to as well, because I think there's a whole big project and Unix certainly draws on this. Because uh, otherwise, I mean, it could be really difficult other than a file extension. So, so So I guess the message here is that a file extension is not the only way that, uh, an OS can identify a type of file and that it's possible. I think if, if you remove the extension that it may still be able to figure out as long as, uh, as again, it has a, a something that's in this magic number uh database.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So uh, if you, uh, a little side tip, uh, one thing that's always a pain is, you know, th- this command is file space and then the name of the file. But unless you're really comfortable with the terminal, It can be a real bear to either type the full path to the file or navigate there via, you know, CD commands and that sort of thing to get to the directory where you can just type the file name. So there is a a, an easier option. Open up a terminal. Type the word file that you're going to have to do manually. So F.I.L.E. space and then uh, and maybe you don't need the space. I'm going to try it without the space, but uh, and then in the finder, find whatever file it is that you want to get information on. And just grab it and drag it like you're copying it, but you're not. Like you're copying it, drag it to that, uh, that terminal window. You do need to uh, put a space after the word file, because otherwise it's not going to work. But right wherever your cursor is, it's going to paste in the full path to that file, whatever it is. It could be three lines long, and it's going to go ahead and put that in there, and then you just hit return. So you type file space, you drag it in like you're copying it. And you'll see the name and the whole path and all the mess appear. And then you hit enter and or return rather. There's my Unix mind thinking, uh, you press return and boom, there it goes. So that's my side tip for you, John. Yeah. Well, I
0: got a side, side tip. Yeah, go to me. That's too complicated, man. So you just type file space, type in the first few characters of the file and then hit tab. And that should do an autocomplete.
1: But that's only, only if you're in the directory that contains the file. Yes. yes. Right. Whereas if you drag it in, it's going to it's gonna give you the directory. Sure. Yeah. So, yes. But if you're in there, that's right. Tab is awesome for file name or directory name completion.
0: Because I've noticed what it does is it'll fill in the special characters. Because, yeah, a lot of times uh, the command line has a problem dealing with special characters and spaces and stuff like that. For example, one of them I did here, it had spaces in it. And so we would do the first few characters, then a backslash, then a space, then... Yep. So it would encode it properly so that when you hit return it wouldn't say huh. Yep. Which could happen if you just type out the name of the file straight off.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, oh, yeah, that can be a real a real bear. Very cool. Anything else on this one John or are we uh are we ready nope. to move yep. on? I Think we're ready to move. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh that means we're moving on to Paul. And I will find Paul here. I was actually distracted checking the bandwidth graphs for the uh for the live stream here but it seems pretty much inconsequential as well so that's a good thing this is excellent I'm glad to see this working as well as it is it's nice when something comes together like this all right that's com slash stream is how you would get there and now with paul this is this is really interesting. We're, we're going to need more information on what we're about to talk about here. So, uh, Paul writes, "I have eight gigs, and and this was again in in response to something we were talking about in three ninety nine with SSDs and machine, machines using up RAM and that sort of thing." And he says, "I have eight gigs of RAM in my thirteen inch mid twenty ten MacBook Pro running ten so Lion." And I was in exactly the same situation as Scott's where my machine was using up all my free RAM, just like we described. Paul says until I installed an SSD, I've been running my system for over a week now and have not once dropped below two gigs of free RAM. However, prior to installing the SSD and running off of it, uh, I was regularly dropping to 10 megabytes for no apparent reason. I just thought I would share this with you guys in case it helps other listeners. So we don't have a whole lot of data on this other than what Paul has seen and and some of what I've seen uh, that. that's sort of separate, but anyway, uh, it seems like uh, there's something going on. Lion certainly is aware of what type of media you have uh, for each drive and, and in this case specifically for your boot drive. Uh, Lion knows that you have an SSD and then it also checks to see if the SSD, SSD supports that trim command and it will, it will use the SSD differently if it does, uh, versus if it doesn't. And so what Paul is suggesting here, and it certainly makes sense is that Lion is saying, Hey, uh, if we've got all this stuff on an SSD, we don't necessarily need to keep, be so aggressive about storing it in Ram. In fact, we can free up Ram because we know we can get it off the SSD very, very quickly. And I I've never heard anything of this, but it certainly makes sense that, that it could be done. And, and it makes sense that Apple would do it. Uh, I don't know if we'll get any answers about that at WWDC next week, but it's certainly a question I intend to ask. And if I get an answer, I can share, I will. But, uh, but I, I'd be curious as to anyone else that running Lion that that has seen anything like this, because it it, it it seems interesting, certainly plausible. But, uh, but we haven't heard anything specific from Apple saying, yeah, this is what we're doing and this is why. Interesting stuff, though, John, in theory, seems like a good idea.
0: That's a good one. I'm just trying to think about it based on what I know about OS design, if it would make sense for you to. Look at things like the rotational speed or the type of media. I mean, yeah. yeah, as you point out, certainly if you go to System Profiler, it'll say, "Oh, it's a, it's a solid a state versus rotational, rotational or solid state." Yep. Yeah, I'm wondering if it does anything different other than trim. I mean, the trim obviously is something you can't do on a, or it makes no sense to do it on. Well, a and it
1: also rotational probably rotational drive. It probably doesn't. I hope it doesn't try to do any of that hot file management and the, the defragmentation that happen on rotational drives automatically.
0: I mean, that's good that's point my because hope. I don't, it, yeah, because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, the the thing that I have seen is utilities. I, I believe, um, like, I think I tried this once just for kicks is I think I tried to do a defrag with drive genius. Yeah. On an SSD just to see what would happen. And I think it came up and said, um, you know, this is a rotate. This is a SSD, you know, doing this is kind of stupid. You want to do it anyways, I'll do it, but sure. Yeah. You're not going to buy yourself anything by doing a defrag on a, an SSD. Right. Right. As far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> Except, you know, burn
1: up, burn up your, uh, right cycles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's bad for it. In fact. Yeah. Really bad. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Lastly, in terms of HP printer software, Gary writes in with a tech tip. He says, although most HP software packages in OS 10 have uninstallers, they often do not necessarily uninstall everything throughout the system. However, there is a scrubber option in the HP uninstaller that will do this. Start the HP uninstaller, choose which printer software you want to uninstall. And then as you click the uninstall button, hold the command option and control keys down and that will get you a full uninstall that will wipe out everything. So thanks for that tip. I had no idea that existed. I, it's crazy that it, the, I, I don't understand why the uninstall wouldn't do all of that. But at least now we know how to make it do all of that. Because a lot of times you want to uninstall and reinstall as troubleshooting or problem solving. And if you're not removing everything, then you have less of a chance of solving any given problem. Thoughts on that, John? Who's thought of that? Oh, my gosh. What a crazy key combination. <laughs> well, it's all right there at the bottom of the keyboard. It's like, you know, handy. Easy, to easy access. No. Well, you won't hit it by accident. Well, you could, unless if you're like leaning your whole body down on the keyboard. That would be a bad idea. Maybe your whole fist pounding the keyboard. I want it all uninstalled. And then magically it works as you pound your fist on the control option and command keys. Right. You want to tell him about the first thing that Felix sent in for Cool Stuff Found here, John? No. All right. You want me to tell him yes. about it? Okay, yes. I do. <laughs> did I say this? I guess I did. But Felix says, I remember John
0: was saying how he missed the color icons in Lion. I, I do as well. And he said that Mac OS X Daily sent this, and it puts the color back. And we'll link to this. It's a piece of software called SideFX. Yeah. And I wonder if Secrets does this, too. Let me look at my Secrets database. Okay. While you uh do something else there,
1: yeah, no. So this this does add. You can see a screenshot if you go to the side effects website, and it adds all that luscious color back to the uh, to the lion sidebar. So that's right. It's good stuff. The secrets have anything, John?
0: I uh, got quite a few uh, tweaks here. I'll let you know in a
1: moment. Okay. All right. Well, Felix sent in two. Thank goodness, and uh. The second one is something called cheat sheet. Now uh, cheat sheet is a great way to see all of or most of. I don't think it shows everything, but it shows most of the keyboard shortcuts. And all you do is you hold the command key down once you have cheat sheet installed and you can get it in the Mac app store and it's free. Uh, You hold down the command key for two seconds And you'll get a little overlay that pops up that shows you all of the available um, keyboard shortcuts and and what they what they correspond to. So for those of you that like keyboard shortcuts like John and I do, this is uh, this is likely going to be one of those super duper cool things found. And uh, and thank you, Felix, for hipping us to that, because that's what uh, to me. That's what cool stuff found is all about. Do you have anything you know, I got another one yes, I do all right
0: just just to shock you here, but um, shocking
1: oh i did I did a write up on
0: this long ago, and every now and then i'll use it i, I don't think i've um k e y c u e at ergon
1: yeah but is is that still being made? I thought cheat sheet was kind of like taking over for ergonus's lack of um, attention
0: to the market um, version 6.1 was released on April 10th, 2012. So I'll I'll give you that still being made. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a 1999 euros. They're across the pond somewhere. Okay. Yeah. It's the same people that do, okay. They do a bunch of other things. Pop char. Okay. Yep. that's one that has been around forever. I think that's a good one. So, so that's another utility that, yeah, I think it, uh, depending on the app that you're in, you hold down certain keys and it'll show you all the keyboard shortcuts.
1: So Awesome key cue cool all right and then uh and then one last cool stuff out before we wrap things up here is from paul and paul writes i saw this and thought it was so cool i just had to share it and it's called leap and it's a tiny little usb dongle for your mac that uh that then lets you he (laughs) he says it uh it 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 actually lets you remote control your Mac with your finger, uh, as long as you have this little little dongle thing in front of it. So really, really cool. Uh Leapmotion.com. It's I don't believe it's out yet. Uh, but uh but definitely pretty cool. I think you can pre order it at uh at leapmotion.com. So it's seventy bucks. And uh we'll put it we'll put a cult of Mac article up that well, let me see if, if it's if the video is here at Leap Motion or if we need to send you to Cult of Mac. Nope, you can see the Leap introduction video right there at, at Leap Motion. So check this out. Yeah, seventy bucks pre order, and uh, and and just go watch the video. It's a minute long, so you'll you know you'll make it. Uh, let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna even put this in our chat room here because we can do that. And oh, Coder Kev beat me to it. Thank you very much, Coder Kev. So uh, so yeah, check it out. Leap Motion. Did you watch that video, John? No. All right. Uh, Well, I guess. I think it's time, John, to see if maybe we can convince the band to come back in. We can. You got anything else to add here, John, before uh, before we go through our contact information and all of that good stuff?
0: Mm, No.
1: No. The only thing I could add is if you want to
0: contact us, Dave. Yes? You should probably, if you're listening to this, well, some of you may not, but some may. But you you probably want to send an email to premium
1: at macgeekab.com. That's for all the premium subscribers. Premium at macgeekab.com. Or premium at macgeekab.com. Com. That's right. And if you happen to be listening on, this, on the stream, perhaps, if you are a non-premium user and you want to uh, to email us, that's feedback at MacGeekab.com. Feedback at MacGeekab.com? Is that what you said? I did. Is that right? Feedback at macgeekup.com? Did I get that wrong?
0: No, that, that,
1: that's correct. Okay, cool. You can also call us at 206-666-GEEK, which John is... Four thirty-three five, and uh, you can Skype us to Mac Geekab, of course. Facebook, Facebook dot slash Mac That's right, and you can find us on Twitter, uh, Mac Geekab, to follow. That'll let you know when the stream is coming up. Uh, you can uh, follow him at John F Braun. You can follow me at Dave Hamilton. You can follow Pilot Pete uh, wherever he is off to. And uh, at Pilot Pete, and then uh, Mac Observer for all your headlines. All twitter.com dot slash, and uh, and then keep an eye on macgeekhub.com slash stream for our uh, our our live stream as that gets better and better. And really, I meant what I said. If you visit there, and you've got some ideas about doing a, a more uh, universally compatible uh, HTML five player in the browser and that sort of thing please email us at any of the above contact us somehow let us know what uh, what you're thinking because we would love to help make that work better for you that's the that's the idea and uh i guess that's that we'd like to thank michael johnston uh he did not convert show 400 because he was swamped and he didn't want you to wait so show 400 was not sent out as aac but hopefully this one will be and uh he of course does the we have communicators podcast so go listen to that too please cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth to get all the, to get the podcast from us to you except for the stream that's just coming straight from us to you that's how we roll and lastly, uh, the next show, which will be show 402, will be our 7th anniversary show. We will be doing that on our 7th anniversary, which is next Wednesday, the 13th. I think we're going to record early in the morning, about 9 a.m. Eastern is the plan, which means it's 6 a.m. for me on the West Coast. Yeah. But, uh, but we'll squeeze that in there, and, uh, and that'll be after the keynote. I will be at the keynote at WWDC. You can follow along with that at liveblog.macobserver.com. So we'll see what happens there. I'll be doing the coverage on that. Have a great weekend, folks. we will talk to you on the other side. Have fun. Don't get caught. Made up.